welcome everyone to the third episode of All the Best Craft Banter. You have Blair and Danielle here, and this is a special edition of our episode. We're talking about one of the major issues in the craft beer industry as of late, uh, sexual harassment, diversity conversation, and just how the industry can do better in in this area. Uh, We also have uh, Michelle Robinson, who is Red Thunder Woman and host of Native Calgarian Podcast. Uh, we also have Tamar Dinner. She is the training center facility with the Center for Sexuality. And Kristen Elani with Field Law will be talking about the upcoming webinar that we have for ASBA members and all legal responsibilities of small businesses. everybody. Thanks again for being with us today for our third podcast. Uh, we have Michelle with us. So if Michelle, you'd like to introduce yourself. Okay. My name's Michelle Robinson. My name in for our in our culture is Red Thunder Woman. Um, I always like to start off with uh, land acknowledgement. And because we're uh, servicing all of Alberta, um, I'll do an Alberta uh, land acknowledgement and folks across Alberta are all on treaty territory. The top region is treaty eight. The middle is treaty six. The bottom is treaty seven with a small smidge of four and 10. There are roughly 140 reserves and roughly 45 first nations that speak different dialogue dialects of Cree, Blackfoot, Dene, uh, Nakoda, and many visiting nations adding more indigenous languages. There are eight official Métis settlements, but there were 12. The Métis Nation of Alberta split the province into six regions. Inuit also traveled to these lands for work, school, family, and community. Canada has not honored those treaties at any point in history. Reconciliation cannot happen without truth. Honoring the treaties is our role as as folks now uh, living on these treaty lands. And we're all treaty partners and want Indigenous inclusion. So I always acknowledge that all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status and non-status as the keepers of Turtle Island. And I I do that because of uh, other government policies that uh, maybe stop people from identifying uh, what type of Indigenous person they are. So um, I'm really honoured to be here. I was born here in Calgary. My uh, mother is Satu Dene, uh, so she's way from Treaty 11. The band that was assigned to us is Yellow Knives Dene. And uh, my dad is so Canadian. I'm a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution through him. And uh, yeah, as somebody who was born here I uh, and who is Native, I hear a lot of everyday racism. So I jokingly called my uh, podcast Native Calgarian because uh, when folks identify as a native Calgarian, I always ask them, what nation are you from? <laughs> oh, that's, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for the introduction. And we're really happy um, to have you here, Michelle. Oh, I'm honored. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much. So we have just a couple of questions that we kind of wanted to ask you. And um, yeah, I guess we'll just roll right into it. So the first one that I want to ask to you is what is the purpose and goal of truth and reconciliation? Uh, Basically, there was a a report that came out in 1996 called the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. And in there, they had a recommendation to actually have a a full in-depth 
conversation about Indian residential schools and their impacts. And that finally came to a lawsuit in which uh, the survivors sued the federal government. And from that lawsuit came um, through their money that they collected, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And uh, that was a, a very long process. It took years to go through and uh, go through process and talk to survivors and put together a report and have events uh, discussing the impacts of Indian residential schools on uh, the Indigenous community. And sadly, it, it uh, didn't include all of them. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report is the result of all of that work. And the goal, obviously, is for there to be systemic changes done within Canada so that there is equality and, uh, and recognition of the genocide and sacrifice Indigenous people have made here. Oh, okay. That's, I, I honestly didn't even know all that. So yeah, very interesting stuff. Very interesting. I guess rolling into the next one, um, how as businesses and individuals, like how can we do better? Um, and how can we be more welcome, welcoming and, you know, inclusive spaces? Yeah, so I think that um, you can't have reconciliation without truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that Canadians need to um, unlearn some things they thought were the truth and actually were not. Yeah. And the truth is, is that Canada was built um, by excluding Indigenous people. So the Canada that is now here is at the expense of uh, all Indigenous people across the country. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to start being honest about that, then we can start that roadmap of, um, you know, being more inclusive to Indigenous people. So I think that uh, the fundamental pieces have to be, you know, the land that you're on so that you know who are the people you displaced in order for you to live a rich life, uh, mm-hmm. whether you're in the Saddle Dome or up in Edmonton or Fort McMurray, what are the lands that you're on? So I always encourage people to start there. It's actually not even in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Hmm. But it just, it's a, a, the very start of it. How can I expect you to know uh, where to look for uh, bodies of dead children, unmarked graves, if you are completely unaware of the land that you're even on? Right. So we can't, we can't really start anywhere until we know the land that we're on. So that's why I always encourage uh, settler people to not just do a land acknowledgement, but explain a bit of who they are. So I talked about my mom being Satu Dene, my band. I talked about my father being a, a son of the Mayflower. And, and those things are all relevant. Um, I know a lot of uh, new immigrants are very offended when people ask them, no, where are you really from? But if Canadian culture included all of us introducing the land and introducing a bit of our backstory to every single person that we meet, then that would be less awkward, one. And two, it would show that you understand this is the way Indigenous people uh, start building those relationships. And I would argue that, you know, all of all of Canada is Indigenous land, all of it. So if we're going to start um, living equally, we have to start working together. So I, I would argue that we have to start there. So, okay, you know who you are. You've told me your background and what land you're from um, as I get to... Uh, educate more people. They'll even tell me where they grew up, or the lands that they're from, and the residential schools that were surrounding them. 
So I always encourage people that, you know, your land acknowledgement can be, you know, I acknowledge I'm on Treaty 7, but as you learn more, expand your um, your understanding of that and, and mm-hmm. you know, do that teaching to others. So um, that's where we can start. Uh, another part that we can start is uh, reading. I'm a big reader. I know that's not very uh, cool, though. I've seen stats that show a lot of people do not like to read. Um, unfortunately. But fortunately, we do live in 2021, where there is YouTube and podcasts and audiobooks and other ways of learning other than um, just reading. So if you're not a reader, consider um, Indigenous content, Indigenous audiobooks, and, uh, you know, podcasts, obviously, um, magazines, articles, books written by Indigenous people. Uh, That's where I would really encourage people start to understand. Um, I honestly think there needs to be an understanding of um, the reports that are relevant to real meaningful reconciliation and systemic changes. Um, A big topic right now is systemic racism. And Canada has to admit it's built on systemic racism. Uh, That was the purpose of the Indian Act and moving us um, into reserves was systemic racism. So once we've just accepted that as fact and we don't have to debate it through uh, think tanks or whichever, we just we just all know this is the reality, then we can start moving on <laughs> and we can start moving together. So um, what was the question? I'm sorry. No, no, that you're, you're answering it. Great. No, it was um, how as businesses and individuals, like how can we do better? Yeah, so I think uh, to this point, too, we've also seen that there's been a huge socioeconomic disadvantage. And that was designed on purpose through the Indian Act and through governmental policies. And we aren't alone. Obviously, there was Chinese head taxes and exclusion from other countries uh, like uh, India and Pakistan from being able to come in. So by no means, um, like systemic racism is is a foundation of Canada and it, it goes through many different cultures. So when it comes to economic opportunity, we have an opportunity to make some, some major changes. So uh, first and foremost, hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks, um, it has been proven, there's lots of studies to show that, you know, white English speaking usually pick white speaking. English speaking names. And I think that that's really problematic. A lot of, uh, especially out here in Alberta, our last names are quite identifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, a Baptiste, a Tail Feathers, you know, it's very obvious what um, an Indigenous last name is out here. So we face discrimination based off of that. And in my podcast, I start out by saying, you know, I was born Michelle Elliott, and my name is Michelle Robinson, and that these English names have afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. So I think it's that understanding that uh, if my name was Michelle Morning Bull, there is a high chance you and I would not be even having this conversation. So um, there needs to be an understanding that there is racism <laughs> right from the start in hiring practices. Second of all, uh, there is a lack of understanding of barriers that uh, Indigenous might face compared to non-Indigenous, new immigrants face compared to folks that are already here. Um, You know, there's many different layers of what that looks like. And um, the uh, community that uh, talks about ableism would be very angry at me if I didn't mention that as well. Um, We're talking on Zoom 
And they were asking for those options long before a pandemic. And funny enough, now that um, so-called able-bodied people could do it, now we suddenly make that adaptation. So I think that um, we have to start looking at our at our hiring practices. And why that matters is that if I'm a disabled Indigenous woman looking for a job, I'm probably less likely to get that position if I have, um, you know, what businesses consider special needs. So let's let's move on from you know basic racism 101 yeah um, a lot of people like solutions so the truth and reconciliation commission actually had many volumes of books so this one is just a, the summary of eight books that i have wow um yeah so this summary is available at chapters that you can buy it's actually free online as well but i i recommend every single canadian own this book um at the very minimum. So this is the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Volume 1 Summary, Honoring the Truth, Reconciling for the Future. So I bring that up because of the many volumes of books that there were, Volume 6 is actually just called Reconciliation. And in it, um, they actually have a whole chapter that's designed around uh, the call to action 92. Uh, Call to Action 92 is very specific about corporate sector, land sustainability, and economic development. In this conversation, um, it does talk a lot more about land rights, but just quickly, I'll just read uh, the calls to action to you. Uh, Call to Action 92 says, we call upon the corporate sector in Canada to adopt the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as a reconciliation framework to apply its principles, norms, standards, to corporate policy and to core operational activities involving Indigenous people, their lands, resources. And this would include, but not be limited and meaning to, and it talks about consultation, equity for job access, training, educational opportunities in the corporate sector, and that we get long-term sustainable benefits from economic development, and that Management and staff have a history of Aboriginal peoples, including the legacy of Indian residential schools, the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People, the treaties, Indigenous rights, Indigenous law, corporate crown relations, and require uh, skill-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. And of course, all of this does indeed matter. Uh, most folks don't even know what treaty they're on. And in the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People, we actually uh, talk about our inherent rights for equality and equity. And uh, that's why it's the framework to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report and also a call to the corporate sector on uh, ways that they can implement some different ideas. And I also wanted to point out, I have uh, the inquiry for the National Inquiry for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls has um, a two-volume set as well, and it's also free and available online. And in the calls to justice, they have calls for media and social influencers, which, uh, you know, we're both on podcasts. So they they actually have um, some guidelines for that. And then a little later, uh, they have calls to action for um, industry as well. So there's actually lots of different guidelines that people can start to incorporate. It doesn't take much to look. Uh, 
the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People is super tiny and small. Um, it's free, available to the public. And um, just as in Calgary, the White Goose Flying Report was a very specific look at the TRC with a lens for just municipal, um, you know, uh, concepts and policies that need to be developed in order to meet the TRC. It's the same, I would, I would say, for all corporations, is that there's a, a policy that needs to be implemented for Indigenous people. And I think that if you see the frameworks, that it, it's just about equity. Um, and, and bottom line is what it is. And, uh, and learning, cultural competency, as well as anti-racism training. Um, I recently did an interview and talked about, you know, folks' anti-Indigenous bias that they are actually unaware they even have. And, um, you know, I'm talking to you, you're a woman, and you probably know exactly what it's like to have uh, somebody look through you or look to your male counterpart to before answering a question or asking a question. It's the same thing as Indigenous people, the assumption that I'm incapable of answering this. Like, white supremacy, people think it's wearing white sheets, but it's actually that bigger picture of knowing that the person in front of you is not equal to you totally based off of a bias that is inherent. So, you know, unpacking that and unlearning that and then, you know, bringing that into your corporate work and recognizing that sometimes we dismiss somebody based off of a name that's hard to pronounce, the color of their skin, maybe their gender, or maybe their ableism. You know, there's many different levels of bias that we have, and we all have them, myself included, uh, during the Black Lives Matter marches. I had to unpack anti-racism or anti-blackness that society, curriculum, media have over the years of my life taught me. And I've had to unlearn a lot of that. Yeah, uh, same with anti-Asian racism. Um, you know, sex work is a is a, a conversation that a lot of people get very um, defensive about. And that is that bias, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that inherent negative bias that we've been taught over the years of our life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I guess speaking with, um, you know, uh, companies and things like that with the hiring process of this, um, like, are there ways that we could reach out to Indigenous communities when hiring um, or providing some job training? Like even, I know, um, within our industry and with the Alberta Small Brewers, like we're really looking at diversifying and everybody is welcome. I know a lot of our breweries are, are, um, feeling that exact same way. And, um, yeah. So like where, where would we look to for, you know, within the indigenous communities to reach out to? I'm so glad you asked this question. Uh, so depending on where your brewer is in, in relation to, uh, Alberta, you know, I started off by talking about the different treaties, uh, almost every area has like a coalition of treaty partners. So, mm -hmm. You know, all the Treaty 8 nations are together, um, you know, in dialogue with each other. There is a chief that uh, was elected to for that area as well. Um, but also, you know, especially in the urban setting, I'm, I'm here in Calgary and Mokins, this is what the Blackfoot call it, Klinchotine in Hay in my language. That's, it means many horse town for the Calgary Stampede. Um, anyway, this area specifically, I, I know, you know, Aboriginal Futures is a nonprofit that specifically targets Indigenous people going into the workforce. So okay. if I was a brewer, I might want to partner up with that nonprofit or maybe um, a Métis local or maybe a Métis local in the treaty uh, partners and, and talk about creating that program. 
because the truth is this program has been made many times over in many different ways for many different industries over and over again. So we literally are just taking the, the blueprints and crossing out Shell or Chevron and saying this Brewer company literally is what what we're doing is working those partnerships because we're, we're quite um you know we, we have to this is this is the the way we make um our our members indigenous folks be able to survive in this colonial uh economy so uh you know i would just really encourage those partnerships um every urban setting has a friendship center so if you're thinking if you're hearing this in grand prairie and you don't have relations with the nearby um First Nation, you don't have relations with your uh, local uh, Métis group, or you know you don't know any of the nonprofits. Might want to start at the Friendship Center um, and work from there. So, and then you can slowly develop those partnerships. And you know, I encourage every Canadian. Like we're we're talking pretty specifically about brewers, but there's not a single you know demographic that this would exclude whether no, you're sure. a sports club whether you're a community association you know it starts somewhere and this is where it would start yeah absolutely that's really good to know so cuz yeah like i said I'm, we don't really know where to to go or how to start you know looking so i really appreciate that that's um really really good information to know um i'm actually just going to put a little uh caveat there too and say yeah. You know, every single person in Alberta can start following the social media of the people that they're surrounded by. So, like, I'm Satu Dene, but I follow Sutina Dene or the Sutina Dene in my area, um, Bagani, Siksika, Ganai, all of them. I follow all of them. Um, even the Metis local, I follow them. And just to make sure that I'm kind of staying on top of, you know, my treaty partners, because my treaty is Treaty 11. So I'm, I am a visitor to this area of uh, Treaty 7. So um, those voices are the ones that I'm meant to amplify first and then, you know, go from there. So, okay. No, that's great. Thank you so much. So I guess we'll kind of continue on to, to the next question, a little different topic. Um, what would you like to see happen in the, in the broader community, you know, of Alberta during the Indigenous Heritage Month? Yeah, so even right now, um, AHS uh, gave a PDF to the Indigenous people. I threw it up on my uh, podcast and my all my social media, encouraging people, I will forward you this email if you want it. And there's Zoom links to events that are happening right now. And I think Canadians sometimes think, well, that's for Indigenous people. And it's like, well, yes, it is. But as our treaty partner, I, I'm forced to know about you. Why don't you come find out about me? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So uh, right now there's Indigenous awareness um, events happening all across the province. Um, they mainly center around uh, June 21st because that's our, our big day. Okay. But there are events usually the week before flag raising ceremonies and um, bigger events that happen. Uh, my book club is about to have its fifth year anniversary coming up. So I'm quite excited about that. Uh, these are, are things that are happening in around everybody. They just might not know it. Yeah, no, that's that's great. So yeah, if you could forward me that email, I'll definitely for all of our members um, that are listening, we can put that out in our in our newsletter or add it onto our socials and just to make everybody aware. I love it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, so kind of the last question I have for you, unless you want to, you know, add anything else in that I may have missed is, um, what are some tangible actions that we can all take today to, to do better and be better? 
I encourage every single person to be able to tell me their land acknowledgement and to tell me their settler status. status. I I have people say, oh, my family moved here. I'm a sixth generation Albertan. Um, You know, know your history. If you don't know your history, then, you know, that's uh, actually part of your journey too. So, you know, for folks who might be feeling like, well, I was adopted, so I don't know. That's part of your story. Um, You know, our people have been adopted. We have lots of First Nations, Métis and Inuit that don't know where they come from because of the uh, government, current government policies to apprehend our children. So, you know, this is our reality. And uh, I encourage folks to learn their land and be able to introduce themselves to Indigenous people. Um, And then, of course, actionable. Sign up on the email lists of, you know, your local First Nations, your treaty partners, your Métis local. These are are things that most people don't do. You don't mind deleting the chapter's email, but you won't, you know, read what's happening. Uh, This this link that we're talking about that I'm going to be forwarding to you. Well, if you were already previously signed up with some of your local Indigenous folks, you might have already gotten the notification and been able to put that in your calendar. So that's why I encourage people to sign up so that they have an idea of what's going on. Um, and just for just to brag, because I'm I'm Dene <laughs> and Sutina are my cousins. Yeah. Uh, Sutina, they regularly have um, a dinner around Boxing Day. It's open to everybody. Oh, wow. And yeah, so yeah. all the Indigenous community goes because we all know we're going to be there. But, yeah. you know, Sutina is right beside um, Calgary. Like they're they're together. So that community that's right there, they should be going. Uh, for me, I don't mind. I'm in Abbeydale. I don't mind going to Marlboro Park to go to a community event. So, we, you know, we need to start seeing that neighborly connection, right? Yeah. Um, so those are things today that people can do. Yeah. Um, I would... I would really encourage people to, you know, get the United Nation Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Summary, the um, National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. These links are public and available. So, you know, just challenge yourself Mm -hmm. to read a small section a day or to read maybe one section, even a week, maybe a month. Um, I have a monthly book club. Uh, there's a settler book club, and then there's an indigenous-led book club by myself here. Um, I encourage people to uh, join these. They're basically called reconciliation action groups. So almost all the local churches have one, and they're trying to talk about these issues. So you know, consider joining that type of work um, here in Calgary. We have a small committee and we've been working on getting a school name change. And now we'll be working on different efforts as well. Same thing is happening in Edmonton and as, as it is across the country, actually. So um, having folks like start that community, if you don't uh, see one in your area, if you're like in Grand Prairie and you go reconciliation Grand Prairie on Google and mm-hmm. nothing comes up, then point that finger at yourself and go, OK, let's start this you know, let's do this because it's important that everybody starts to learn about each other. And I say that as somebody who's reading anti-Black books, um, anti-Blackness books, and how to unpack that and to, uh, you know, center the voices of the people that you're trying to learn from. So, um, you know, if somebody has a, a disability and, are, and is angry, um, let them be, you know, having that voice and having that platform because anger is uh, indication of hurt 
and a boundary being crossed. And as somebody who's able-bodied, I may not recognize I'm doing that. Uh, just as somebody who's maybe not Indigenous doesn't know when they're doing it to me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I just really encourage people to kind of start start with the easy to obtain things. Libraries now have stock full of information. Um, the other thing is too, as parents, um, the idea of, you know, reading the inquiry might be a little overwhelming, but there's lots of age appropriate books for kids. So if you're a parent, you know, read to your kid an age appropriate book for them. Yep. Uh, there are books about residential schools that are for little kids, but they're not graphic and they don't go into details. They're age appropriate. So, you know, I encourage uh, everyone to have a look. You can Google Indigenous books for whatever age group you're looking for and go from there. And that that can be a part of your learning as well. And, um, you know, and then challenge racism. If you see discrimination and bias, we as people have to start having those uncomfortable conversations. And uh, there's lots of like cultural safety guidelines. I, I give them in my podcast and I encourage folks to learn what to do. So if you're on the train and you see a woman in a hijab being harassed, that you know how to support that person without escalating it. I know in Alberta, we like to pick some fights. And if we have some beers, we might want to, we might be a little more brave. But, That's you right. know, especially if we've had alcohol, it's just go, no, this is not my place. Yeah. You know, we don't make good decisions <laughs> and, and then go from there. Right. Like, uh, you yeah. know, so, so just be, be honest with yourself and, um, you know, we don't want violence. We want the opposite. We want to start building relationships with folks that we may not normally do and, and maybe do an environmental scan of your life and go, okay, who are my black friends? Who are my native friends? Who are my Asian friends? Who are my friends? And if you're recognizing you don't have people outside your demographic, there might be some self-reflection to do there. Yeah. Why is that? Um, I'll, I'll give an example. I'm lucky enough to know Kent Hare. And Kent Hare has a wheelchair. And Kent Hare cannot come to my house. And that's unfair to him. You know, I, and that, that's something I'm thinking about as I go for my next uh, house. Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, is my house wheelchair accessible that my friends who are in wheelchairs can come to my house? You know, these are biases that we don't even think about, you know, yeah, as somebody right. who's able bodied. I didn't think about that until I started to get more friends who have disabilities and I recognize I don't accommodate. And that's, you know, that should be the standard, not my reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that completely makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I, I really, yeah, like I said, I really, really appreciate you, Michelle, being with us today. Um, you've provided some wonderful information for everybody and all of our listeners. And yeah, um, if you can send over that that email to me, it'd be greatly appreciated because I'd love to share that out with, with all of our listeners and in regards to um, Heritage, the Heritage Month for Indigenous. So yeah, um, if you have anything else to add or say just before we go please do i mean i could honestly talk to you all night like you're just you've got just great stories and great information and i really appreciate you being with us i'm really honored to be on your podcast thank you a million and yeah i'll forward you that email and i can't wait to uh continue that dialogue in the future for sure yes absolutely no i and you know what i would we'd love to have you back on the podcast too at another time to kind of continue this conversation because yeah it was um really great speaking with you awesome thanks so much for everything oh, thank you so much 
Welcome, everybody. So on this podcast, um, we have Tamar Dinner with us. She is the Training uh, Center Facilitator with the Center for Sexuality. Um, so yeah, we just have some questions for you, Tamar, and um, I guess we can go ahead and just get rolling. Awesome. Um, yeah, so we just, yeah, thank you so much for being here. And, and um, yeah, we really appreciate uh, the work that you're going to be doing with ASBA. Um, so yeah, I guess the first question we can start off with is, um, what is the center of sexuality and what's some of the history behind you guys? Yes. Awesome question. Um, so center for sexuality has been around in Calgary, um, for more than 40 years. So we started out as the Calgary birth control center. So really centered around like reproductive health and rights. And, um, since then we've really expanded to doing, So much different work around sexuality, healthy relationships, human rights, um, things like gender identity, sexual orientation, um, health equity, um, and a lot, lots of work around consent as well, which is some of the work we're going to be doing with you folks. Um, Our mission is that to teach, train, and advocate around healthy bodies, healthy relationships, and healthy communities. So really any work that has to do with that, we're probably doing it in some way. We do um, comprehensive sexual health education in schools. Uh, We have confidential and free counseling around anything to do with sexual health and healthy relationships. Big part of what we do is our training center. So that is our program that is working with you folks to do um, creating a culture of consent, being an engaged bystander training. Um, But we do many, many trainings and we've trained over 55,000 professionals um, across Alberta and actually across Canada. So we work in Calgary, all across Alberta, and we actually work nationally as well. So yeah, lots of different work that we do to, you know, promote human rights and equity and um, that all folks can experience uh, sexual health and well-being. Wow, that's really great. I didn't realize actually the history um, of how long you've really been around and kind of how it's evolved. So that's really interesting. So you kind of briefly touched base a little bit on this, but what is the purpose of the training that you, the Center of Sexuality, will be providing for um, us? Yeah, so um, we've been providing this uh, specific training since 2013 um, in a lot of different industries and areas. And it has a few different um, purposes um, or learning outcomes, you could say. So the first one is we really want to build people's knowledge and awareness around the topic of sexual violence and sexual harassment. And um, so that people can recognize it when they see it um, happening or um, so people know what it is and what it looks like so that they can prevent that kind of behavior from happening or not act in those ways towards others. We really want to build people's knowledge and awareness around consent, what it is, what it isn't. And we do delve into some topics around the way this can show up in gendered ways in the um, in our lives as well. Uh, we want people to kind of work through some of their own attitudes and values in relation to what their role is in preventing sexual violence. Because everybody, regardless of who they are, their gender, um, their role in a business or organization, whether they're a staff or management or the owners have a role to play in preventing sexual violence. So in a sense, it is a leadership uh, training because everybody can be a leader in preventing sexual violence. We want to help people to have the tools and skills to create 
um, a workplace, a community, an industry that is free of sexual harassment and sexual violence. And uh, part of the way we do this is give people tangible skills so that they can intervene um, as engaged bystanders in a way that empowers the person who might be experiencing that harm. So those are a few of the, the purposes, but really the overall purpose is to create that safer environment that everybody can have their rights respected and everybody can be involved and have fun and enjoy um, either being a patron or being a staff um, at a, uh, in the industry. Oh, that's great. That's really, really important things that um, needs to be, everyone needs to be aware of uh, in, in any situation. Um, so I guess leading into my next question here, do you find this scenario in the craft beer industry unique? Like how widespread of a problem is the harassment and discrimination in workplaces? Yeah, that's a really, really great question and one that we hear a lot. And I would say that it is not unique, um, unfortunately. Uh, every industry is a microcosm of our larger society, right? So uh, we know that harassment, discrimination, uh, sexual violence is a really widespread issue in our society. And so um, we see it everywhere, unfortunately. Um, so we do this training in many industries. As I said, we started offering this in 2013. Um, and in that whole time, we have specifically done a lot of work within the hospitality industry. So whether that's been in bars, venues, the music industry, uh, music festivals, and things like that, um, that's where, yeah, definitely a place where we've done a lot of this work um, and people are really interested in creating those safer environments for their staff and patrons. Okay. Well, I'm also really happy to hear that a lot of people are wanting to um, bring this into their workplace. And it's, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate that this, this is a, it's a common occurrence in a lot of different industries, but happy to hear that a lot of people are wanting to take it, you know, in control and make sure that, you know, everyone has a safe place to be in with its work or just, you know, being a patron. So good yeah. to know. So I guess you kind of, I, I mean, I believe this sort of answers the next question is, is does the education actually make a difference? Yeah. So I think that's an important thing to ask um, because um, you know, it's what we're offering is three hour trainings and um, what's really important to know is that they do make a difference. And that's because um, it brings a lot of awareness and information that people might not already have. And so we spend a lot of time working with young people and talking about healthy relationships and consent. But a lot of people, depending on their um, experiences, we know don't get this information as young people, as teenagers, as early adults. And so we grow up uh, in a society where consent is not really talked about, or we get a lot of um, different messages around what consent really is and how to have relationships. And so we find it is really important to educate people of all ages, and especially adults who maybe never received that kind of education and just had to kind of fumble their way through um, what healthy relationships are. We find that it can be really eye-opening and helpful for people to really get tangible ideas around um, what consent is and what it looks like and what can happen when consent isn't there um, and how harmful that can be. 
It is also really helpful because we know that people really do want to step in and people want to support people and they want to stop this behavior from happening, but they often don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so if people don't have the tools that can stop them from having the confidence to do something. So that's another way where this education is really important because it gives people tangible tools um, so that everyone has a consistent idea of what they can do if they see or hear something happening. And then they can uh, feel more confident to intervene in a safe way. So what are the like the major reasons you see businesses taking this training then? Like, is it, um, you know, been sparked by an issue that's gone on with them? Or is it just recognition of the responsibility? Yeah, so I would say it's a mixture of both. Um, A lot of the places that we've worked with um, are really proactively interested in creating safer workspaces um, and kind of doing this because it's important to them and that's the kind of space they want to create for their staff and patrons, Um, especially if maybe they're a newer business or, you know, that they're like, oh, we're we're starting and we want to do this and have policies and all these sorts of things in place to proactively make sure you know, it's a safer space for folks. Um, But there definitely are places who reach out to us because it's kind of a recognition of something that's happened. They want to take responsibility because unfortunate things that could have been prevented have happened. Um, And so they're reaching out because, yeah, they want to be accountable or they're, maybe it's kind of a reaction to something that's happened. So it's a blend of both. Okay. Is there any piece of advice that you would, you know, give victims of of the workplace or, you know, for any harassment or anything like that? Yeah, so I think that it is really important to center the people who experience harm. And that's what we do in all the work that we do is really, it's the people and there's different words that sometimes are used. So depending on the agency or um, where it is, some people might use the word victim or survivor or person who's experienced harm. But it is really important to center those folks um, in everything that we do. Um, So some really uh, important things for people to know is that it's not their fault. So it is always a person, a person who um, chose to use harmful behavior towards another person. That is their responsibility. It's never a person's fault if they are experiencing harm from another person. And that is really important for people to know. We have a lot of myths around this in our society that it's something that someone did Um, to deserve this. No one ever deserves um, to not be respected and to not be treated um, in a way that involves consent. So really important for a person to know that it's nothing that they did and it's not their fault. Also really important for people to know that there are a lot of supports out there for people who have experienced harassment or sexual violence. Um, And so you know, we're a place that they could connect to that we can offer um, resources and referrals to someone who would of the best places that they can go to get that support, whether it's uh, a place like um, Calgary Communities Against Sexual Abuse, um, or I know you're an Alberta-wide agency or organization, so the Sexual Assault Centre of Edmonton, they offer amazing services to people and supports. There's also amazing private supports that people can access as well. And a lot of really great um, 
uh, just like phone lines across Canada that can are a place where people can be supported um, and know that they're not alone. And so that's also um, this can be an experience that can make people feel very alone. And often someone who is harming someone might make them feel like they're alone or there's no one to help them or listen or believe them. So important to know that they're not alone. Also that healing can look many ways and is unique for each person, but that it is possible. And I guess what I would say too, um, and something I say to people is that, you know, if the first person that you talk to doesn't believe you, keep talking to people until someone does. And I think that that can be hard to do. Obviously, uh, that can feel really, really horrible if people don't believe you. And it's very important for us to know that the most important thing we can do is believe someone if they come to us about experiencing harm. Um, but it is important for people to know that there are people out there who believe them and that they're not alone. Yeah, that's really important. And it's really good to know, too, that there is um, lots of support uh, for individuals because that's absolutely true. A lot of people don't necessarily know where to go or where to turn or they do feel alone. They don't really know that there's many others out there that are, are going through something similar. So mm-hmm. that's great that there's so many um, resources for, for all these individuals in different areas of Alberta and all over, actually. So really good yeah. to know. So do you think or see that workplaces who take this training have better outcomes within the workplace? So like, do um, you see better like uh, production levels, more respectful guests, like anything like that? Yeah, so um, really interesting question around what we can see um, when places are provided with training. And so I would say that we have seen places have great outcomes and that this training starts a really important conversation, right? That brings awareness to kind of the social, the ways that we can disrupt these social norms. So from the start saying like, oh, this behavior, people being harmed in the workplace, like this should not be normalized. This is not something that is acceptable Mm -hmm. in our industry or in this like specific workplace. And that awareness and that kind of uh, making it normal for there to be safer spaces often sparks like a real change once people acknowledge that these issues are real and that they've been happening. It's kind of impossible for that not to create an effect of there being change. Um, The practical skills and tools that we give people also really help a team to develop those skills to create you know, a safer place where people can work better together, more cohesively together. And we know when people don't feel safe in a workplace, whether that's physically or psychologically, it can really reduce how people show up at work, right? Maybe people are calling in sick. Maybe people aren't able to be as efficient or concentrate while they're at work. Uh, Maybe they're not able to work with another employee who's um, like they're spending all their time at work trying to avoid someone who's been harming them um, is going. So when people feel safer in the workplace and it's a more cohesive place where people aren't experiencing harassment and discrimination, we know that that is a place where more people want to be patrons because it's a funner place to go and visit where more people want to work um, and can be, you know, that businesses can be more successful because a lot of people are 
really interested and more likely to want to go and support businesses where they feel safer, where they feel respected, and where they know that the place is putting in, putting effort into that. So that is really important. Um, I think what uh, one thing I will say is that we see even higher levels of success with organizations or industries, bars and venues who work um, on this area in an ongoing way, right? Where it's not just a one-time training, um, but they're implementing policies, right? So anti-discrimination and anti-harassment policies that also come with practice, uh, things like whistleblower policies, where the, this becomes kind of a cultural norm within the business. And then things like annual trainings that all new staff members are trained. So it's consistent across the board that this behavior uh, or like harmful behavior isn't normalized or accepted within that workplace. And so um, training is one part of the kind of the puzzle piece, I would say, um, to um, to this being seeing really all of those outcomes happen. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's great. Like I think, and I agree, I think it's something that's really important that it continues within a, a workplace year round all the time, um, continued training, you know, updated training and when new employees come in to make sure that they're familiar with, with how the business wants to run. And, and I agree, I think like for me, I would rather go to a place that I know that this is, you know, a part of and that it makes me feel safe for being in there. I know that's, that would be something that it is really important to me. And I know it is for a lot of people um, as well. Well, that's kind of it for, for the questions for me. Um, but is there anything else that, you know, you, you would like to add in or, or um, anything else you feel that you want to tell anybody? Uh, no, I'm just really excited about this partnership and working together with your group. I think, um, you know, uh, local craft breweries are really a really cool part of like seeing this grow as an industry in Alberta has been really, really cool to see. And now seeing this kind of um, this happening as well, that so many breweries are interested in creating these kind of spaces for people, um, for both patrons and staff is just super exciting. Yeah, no, we really appreciate also you taking the time out today is and as well as um, having, you know, a couple of sessions with us. And that's something that we're, you know, looking forward to continuing as as we go as well with with having more sessions throughout the year and, and things like that. So yeah, again, I really appreciate you being here today. And um, yeah, we are really looking forward to the sessions that we have with you. And awesome. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the All the Best Craft Venture podcast. Today, we are speaking with Kristen Elani from Field Law. So, Kristen, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a lawyer at Field Law. I've been there for um, quite a number of years now, and I practice in the field of labor and employment law. So dealing with everything related to employees for the most part, including workplace uh, human rights um, area as well. And uh, we also have practitioners that that deal with occupational health and safety, and I do so tangentially. Um, so yeah, it's a great area. 
Awesome. Yeah. So, and that, that really leads into why we're talking to you today. Um, as you're aware, the craft beer industry has experienced a bit of an eye opening in the last few weeks around sexual harassment, misogyny, and um, really a lack of diversity within the industry. So you will be providing us with a webinar for our ASBA members on Monday, June 21st at 10 a.m. And we're just going to talk today a little bit about why our members should be looking to participate in that webinar. So first question, why do business owners need to be thinking about their role in the space of harassment and diversity? So I'll give the legal answer first, given that I'm here as a lawyer, and that's because there are responsibilities under legislation for um, employers to uh, to be paying attention to harassment and trying to prevent it actually in the workplace from happening. So that's the legal side of things. The practical side of things is we all want to be great places to work um, and to have good reputations, I think, uh, no matter what industry we're in. And so if we're going to do that, we need to be paying attention to these issues. For sure. Yeah. And I'm not too sure about any businesses out there who wouldn't want to do better and, you know, feel have their their place of business feel like a family when people come to work. You want to go to work knowing that you're respected and appreciated. So do you think that people put off these discussions because they're nervous about the topic or they don't want to engage legal advice or is there something else maybe? Um, I think those are probably two good reasons. I think it is a topic that raises a lot of nerves for people because everybody's a little bit afraid to to maybe handle it wrong or to not present it well. Um, but I really think um, from that perspective, you know, talking about it, having a plan in place, which, you know, we will talk about a bit more in the webinar for sure and, and a little bit today, um, helps with that. It helps you to have a plan. It helps you to have those conversations and to make it make people aware that they can bring those conversations to you if something is happening or they are concerned something might happen. Um, so that I think that's really important. So that would be what I'd say to those people that are a little bit nervous about it. You know, it's it's got to be done. So better to have a plan and do it that way. Um, I think engaging legal advice is also, you know, it generally uh, can be expensive, but uh, from my experience, much less expensive to have to engage that legal advice before anything happens. Put, put those plans into place, have a procedure um, for how to deal with these things if they come up, um, how to promote a harassment-free workplace and a diverse workplace. Having all that in line, it's going to cost you way less than if you don't and something happens down the road. Those legal fees are, you know, probably 10 times, um, if I'm estimating off the top of my head, at least what you're going to spend um, to just have a plan at the outset, for sure. Wow. So yeah, a couple of arguments there for the investment at the at the beginning of this conversation for sure. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's I had no idea. So <laughs> I like I like days when I learn new things. That's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, we know that these situations can happen in the hospitality industry. And obviously we've we've learned that even more so in the last few weeks. But we also know that it's not always the people working there who are the perpetrators. So why are businesses still responsible when guests are causing the situation? So um, under legislation, uh, mainly occupational health and safety, uh, employers uh, have an obligation to provide a safe workplace. Um, that means making sure people aren't being harassed by anybody who's in that workplace. So customers, you know, could be a supplier maybe that's bringing in supplies or um, contractors that are doing work in the vicinity. If it's in the workplace, and the workplace can be a broad topic, but um, or a broad area, but if it's in the workplace, 
then you as an employer are responsible for that and you have a legal obligation to take care of it. There's also that practical side that we talked about at the beginning. I think, you know, it's part of being a place where people want to work and then, you know, having those people do a great job because they're happy um, with where they're working and they feel safe. For sure. So you mentioned that it does extend past the workplace or that's a bit broad. So in obviously in our industry, you have sales reps that go out. So this would also apply to them. That's absolutely correct. Sales reps that go out, it can apply if you are having even a work-related function of some kind, that could be a workplace. So then as an employer, you have an obligation to make sure you're doing your due diligence to to try to prevent, um, you know, harassment or or anything like that from happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our our members definitely participate in markets, especially throughout the summer, um, festivals, all kinds of things. They have presence in a lot of places. So it's good to know that there is a responsibility beyond that and knowing where you have those responsibilities, for sure. So are best practices only aimed at the owners of businesses or what role do the entire staff play in ensuring that these policies exist and are followed? So it's, I mean, it's not just the owners, it's really, it's everybody. Cause you know, you need your managers and supervisors on board, other people who might be in charge, regardless of what their title would be. Um, you know, if they're overseeing other employees, you need them on board. You need them promoting this workplace that is inclusive, that is diverse, that is not, does not involve any kind of harassment. Um, and then you need employees participating in that too. Um, it's really an overall culture um, that you're trying to develop where it's known that harassment will not be tolerated um, and that discrimination will not be tolerated, all of those kinds of things at any level um, of the organization. So it's really important um, to make sure everybody is aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had kind of that internal conversation about empowering your employees as well, especially in the front of the house. If it is a guest, just knowing that they have policies that back them up in making those decisions of asking a guest to leave because they're maybe behaving inappropriately. I think that's something that a lot of employees would appreciate having behind their back and having employees all aware of if a situation is kind of starting to happen. So that's that's good to know. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. You're right. Empowering employees is a is a major part of it um, from that perspective so that they know what they can and can't do or how they should be handling a situation like that. Absolutely. Great. And so how can, you've kind of already talked about this and touched on it in some ways, but how can efforts in this area lead to a better business? Uh, I, I mean, I think this can make a huge difference. What we're really talking about is creating a workplace where people feel safe um, and secure, right? When they're going to work, they're not concerned that they might be harassed by a customer and not be able to do anything about it. And it's just sort of expected to be tolerated. Um, they're going into a workplace where they know there are protections in place. They are empowered in certain ways to take action if that kind of thing is happening or any other kind of harassment. That was just an example. But um I think that makes people, you know, it makes people care more about the place that they work. And I think when people care more about where they're working and feel that security and safety, you're just going to get even better performance out of them than you otherwise would. For sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I'm old enough to have had several jobs at this point, so definitely agree with that. Um, And so do you know any statistics for businesses who have set up best practices in this area versus those who have not as far as complaints or situations happening? I I don't have any specific statistics, um, but uh, certainly I can tell you from my experience that 
where there is all of this type of the protocols, the procedures, the policies kind of set up in advance, my clients then end up contacting me a lot less down the road um, because they sort of have that procedure. They know how to follow it. They have that great plan in place. And then the only time they have to contact me is if there's some issue that comes up right out of whatever is done out of that, or if they have a question as they're doing some kind of an investigation, um, it, it means I'm a lot less involved down the road. Whereas when they don't have that policy and procedure in place, they pretty much have to get us involved from the get-go to help guide them on what they can do to try to um, to try to address the situation. Um, it also makes it a lot harder if we have to have some kind of a legal battle. We don't have that due diligence backup where we can say, look, but this is everything the employer had in place to try to prevent this from happening, right? So they did the best they could. Um, it really shouldn't be on the employer because they kind of did everything they could um, within reason. Yeah, that makes sense. So just uh, an extra layer of protection and for all of the other reasons we've already discussed, but also if something should happen, because you never know, especially when you do have guests coming into your space, like you can't account for everyone's behavior all of the time. Yeah. No, that's that's so true, right? I mean, you can't, you can't control, I mean, you can control your guests to a point, right? When things get out of hand, I mean, you can, you know, escort them out, ask them to leave, have them not come Mm -hmm. back, but you can't prevent it from happening necessarily in the first place. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so encompassing all of these questions is the end question. What kind of information can ASBA members look forward to at next week's webinar? We're going to talk some more, I think, about situations where harassment might come up in the workplace, how those things might be dealt with. But probably most importantly, we're going to talk about policies um, and procedures and what, you know, what are some of the considerations that go into putting those together? Because every every organization, um, every business is a little bit different. So you might have some specifics that go into it, but there's general overarching things you want to see in there um, that are going to be really important. We'll talk a little bit about investigations, I think, as well. So what that might look like if you do get some kind of a complaint that comes forward um, and how that, you know, process, you know, can typically work again, you know, recognizing their adjustments for each individual employer, um, but all of those kinds of things. Um, and I think we've we've received some interesting questions um, already from, from attendees. So I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what else they come up with. Mm-hmm. That's great. And as we were talking, sorry, I just came up with another question. So hopefully you're okay if I throw one off the cuff at you. Of course. Um, Great. Uh, So we do have a wide range of members, um, geographic location as well as size. Some are a husband and wife that have just started. Maybe it's just them. Maybe they have one employee. Some are much larger. So that whole spectrum obviously will account for some different needs. But at the end of the day, everyone should probably be looking at taking this webinar and then looking forward to how they can have these plans in place, not just for where they're at now, but where they might be in the future. Absolutely. I I think, you know, even if you just have one employee um, at your organization, it's good to have, it could be something more basic, probably, because it's just going to be a lot less complicated or involved, but it could be as simple as if you have an issue, please bring it to X, we will then look into it further and, and, you know, come up with a solution or deal with the situation. Um, so maybe that's going to be a little more simple than than someone that has more employees, you know, 15 even or, or more. But, um, but it can also grow with you. So as your business grows, your policy can kind of grow. It will apply, you know, on that more basic level for a while. And then you can sort of um, develop it as, as things move forward. 
Great. Yeah. I think that's, that's great to know that you can have a, a pretty simple starting point and then grow as your needs grow as well. So is there anything else you can think of adding before we uh, sign off today or anything else maybe you wanted to touch on? <laughs> um. I, I think those are the main things, really, the policies. Um, the other thing I would mention, though, that we'll talk about is those legal obligations. We'll probably talk about those in a little bit more detail than I, I mean, I sort of glossed over them today. They exist, but we'll talk about kind of exactly what those are and, and what you need to be concerned about. So I think that's another reason um, that people should consider attending the webinar. I really think it's going to be a good discussion. Perfect. All right. So again, for our ASBA members, that webinar with Field Law will be Monday, June 21st at 10 a.m. Check your emails for the registration. Um, and thank you so much, Kristen. Really appreciate your time today. And we look forward to more conversation next week. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Blair. Thank you to all of our guests today. This conversation has been amazing and is definitely just the starting point for all of us, I think. So if you have any further questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to us and we can uh, connect you with any of the guests today. Um, as the members, you obviously have a little bit extra content available to you. So please check your emails. And this podcast is edited by Astronomic Audio, the Alberta-based podcasting company that makes big ideas sound even bigger. And also want to throw a big shout out to Connect Logistics. They are our annual sponsor. So again, thank you for all of your support and everything that you guys do for ASBA. Um, also, for anyone else interested in sponsorship opportunities, please feel free to reach out to me, either email me or give me a call. Um, I'd be happy to discuss them further with you. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed the third episode of All the Best Craft Banter. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, everyone.